0: Silver and gold, silver and gold. Everyone wishes for silver and gold.
1: The discovery of gold was the most important social, political and economic event in our nation's history. And there's just so little around now that we can actually tangibly touch and say this is from that period.
0: Silver and gold, silver
2: Today, we're telling the story of some elusive jewellery. Almost as rare as hen's teeth, much of what remains of it has been gathered together for a significant exhibition called 19th Century Bling in Ballarat.
1: If you go to some of the gold museums, you might see a broken boot, an old pick, and a, a rabbit trap or something like this. But this hugely important era of our history is underrated, and these hugely important little Aussie battlers are being lost every day.
2: Trevor Hancock is a collector, and he's talking about how this delicate, unusual jewellery has mostly been and continues to be melted down for the value of the gold alone. So here's a thought. Take a look around at the objects you've collected, all those little mementos that mean so much. These pieces were made for much the same reason, as small private keepsakes, very much of their time and place.
3: I have a piece of jewellery passed down through the family, and uh, it was said to be made from gold from the Eureka Lead. So rather special to me because I do know that my family were on the Eureka Lead from 1853. And both sides of my family were there at the time of Eureka Stockade, December 1854.
2: They also represent something bigger, the history of the gold rushes from the mid-1800s to 1901, and that gives them their value. The pieces here come from collectors and dealers, museums and private owners all around the country.
3: Great-great-granny Phoebe Morgan was a a young Welsh woman who was orphaned in the cholera epidemic in London. She read about Australia and the gold rushes and left an orphan. She decided to catch a boat and come out. She did decide that she didn't really like being a, um, a maid. So she married a gentleman who came to the gold fields. Then she set up a tent and she would buy mutton or a whole sheep and sell the excess to the the miners and they would pay her in gold nuggets.
2: Dorothy Erickson is a historian and scholar of the goldfields jewelry.
3: Her brooch, which was given to her by her husband when her first child died in a puddle in, in one of the mining sites. She died when a handsome cab driver was rather drunk and ran into a tree and she was thrown out and she died of her injuries, but the brooch was shattered and the four daughters got a piece each. And then they my great-grandmother moved to Western Australia and had that brooch made. Unfortunately, it was stolen from my house. So there's only great-great-granny's spectacle, Châtelet, that's in the exhibition and her life story.
4: And those stories are even rarer because, generally speaking, when pieces are bought and sold, the stories don't go with them. And so we're very lucky that a couple of the really avid collectors have done things like phoned the auction house and said, is it all right if I send you a letter to send to the person who sold this piece? And then they get some of the stories out of them. That's the appropriately
2: named Cash Brown, and she's travelled all around the country collecting these often playful, quirky pieces, which speak to particular moments of pride or love. It was the first time that tools of the trade had been used in jewellery as far as we know. Here are the most ordinary things, the tin bucket, the iron spade, the handle of a winch, made in miniature out of one of the most desirable substances on the planet. Jane Smith is the Director of MADE, the Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka.
5: This remarkable jewellery actually reflected the political turmoil of the day. So when I first saw these brooches, it was about the tools of the trade, of being a miner. So there are these large brooches that have been made with picks and shovels and windlasses and things like that. And it was the first time that working class and middle class people got to wear gold. And they proudly wore the tools of their success on either their bodies or the the bodies of the women they loved. The level of skill in the goldsmithing and jewellery making in Australia in the second half of the 1800s was some of the best in the world. It rivaled what Fabergé was doing in Europe. And a lot of them are like small golden sculptures.
1: There's quite a magnificent miner's ring with a kangaroo on the front and a pick and shovel on either support of it. Weighing a tonne, as you can feel.
2: That is a weighty piece. You would not forget where you got it, would you? Or that you have it when you put it on. No,
1: these were the ultimate symbols of success. Unfortunately, many of them were lost because during the depressions we went through and wars, it was men who sold their jewellery first to bring money in to provide sustenance to their families.
6: I think... The jewellery is going to be worn back in the hometown or back in the city, not on the goldfields. I mean, there were lots of robberies. There was highwaymen holding up uh, coaches and things, going backwards and forwards. Anne Schofield is a collector, a historian,
2: and co-author of the seminal book Australian Jewellery, 19th and Early 20th Century. It was written in 1990 and it was the first
6: major study. They would wear it with their very best outfit. It might be dark olive green velvet or brocade. It might have long sleeves. It will be buttoned down the front. It will be waisted. If it's the 1850s, it'll have a crinoline. And you'd be wearing the jewel right there at your neck. Or you'd be wearing a locket right in the front of your bosom and you would i'm sure wear it on the best you know important occasions you know or going to church or whatever
4: a bit of an freak.
2: Trevor Kennedy is a businessman and passionate fan of australiana and he keeps his collection in a heritage building in the rocks down by sydney harbor
0: i have embraced the entire area, as you can see from the place here. I have scoured the auctions, the junk shops, eBay, etc., etc., looking for things that I like. Most of the time, they are very scantily described, and thanks to cash, we're sort of getting uh, Of course, Anne Schofield's been through it all too and has has tried to identify and put dates on a lot of things and places and all of that. I am inexpert, expert other than I collect Australiana.
7: A gleeful digger brandishes his nugget finds, flanked by a crowbar, a spade and a pan flecked with nuggets. The grapevine frame is typical of 1850s jewellery, as is the dove, adding a sentimental touch to this trophy of labour and luck.
2: Cash Brown is visiting Trevor Kennedy to choose pieces for her exhibition, and we're about to check out another unique design to come out of the goldfields, and this was the first European decorative art form to celebrate Australian flora and fauna.
0: A lot more elaborate in many respects. My
2: goodness me. So Trevor maybe you could describe this belonging of yours here.
0: I suspect that's West Australian in the sense that it's a black boy with a big thing sticking out of the top and then there is the kangaroo and the emu you can see and the various flowers and ferns that are associated with the native vegetation.
2: And this is an oval brooch, but Mm -hmm. in fact the items on it are in relief, so there's, what do you call that when it's... open
4: work, so it doesn't have a solid background, so you can see through it, so where the sky would be, that's where you'd still see your clothes through that. And it's a a tableau, so it's like a little landscape. It's a contained landscape, about six centimetres, that one.
2: Look, Every little strand of Mm. the grass trees, fronds, is worked.
0: A lot of the people who worked in these, like Hogarth and Erickson and people like that, were actually world-class jewellers, though.
4: So. When you look at them in um, a high-resolution photograph, the remarkable thing is on them that you can almost tell the species of the leaf, of the gum leaves on them, they're that fine. And it's remarkable to me that these have actually survived, because they are incredibly delicate. It's a very high grade of gold, which means it's terribly soft. But interestingly, the brooch on the left there with the foliage has a beautiful natural gold-bearing quartz sample in the middle. And this is a really, really, really important piece because it kind of does both. It says the wearer's actually saying, my partner or whoever has has found gold and has has struck it rich, and here's my expression of that.
2: So what you're seeing is a little lump of quartz with gold thread threaded through it really so it's the original rock and
4: then a much more decorative formed piece around it. Often the grapes and the vines and things represent um, the Christian faith so the grapes and the leaves and the tendrils and things are to do with, you know, the blood of Christ and that kind of thing. So it could imply that these people are surrounded by the Christian faith and some of the other pieces, particularly if they've got nuggets in them, it implies that it's not really just luck, it's to do with reverence <laughs> as well.
2: God stepped in yes. and gave them a nugget. Yes.
4: Lucky. So when you see little doves as well as the kangaroos and the emus and bows and... Hearts and arrows and all sorts of things. And the Victorians really loved that sort of... It was almost like a coded kind of secret language, a little bit like now when we send texts just using emojis.
0: Silver and gold, silver and gold.
2: Of course, I couldn't help wondering what it is that makes a collector so passionate about, well, collecting... These days, the finds show up mostly in auction catalogues, but you might just be lucky enough to discover something at the back of your grandmother's jewellery cupboard or tucked away in a pawn shop.
0: It's it's a passion of mine. (laughs) The best way I can illustrate it is that it, it does sort of take you over to some extent. There's a friend I have... He's a passionate collector of Australian pottery. And I said to him one day, it's a bloody disease, this collecting, isn't it? (laughs) And he said, I know, it's in here, it's in here, it's in here, it's just all through me. And about 12 months after that, his wife said to him, now look, it's me or the collection. He now lives in a warehouse out in Kensington. (laughs) (laughs) Um, People get absolutely besotted with it. I've got this problem here where I've got no room anymore. What do I do? I can't enlarge this building. It's a historic building. I've already sort of... um,
4: Would you consider deaccessioning any of it to make...
0: I I will have to. Mm. I will have to.
8: Date, 1872, maker, J.M. Vent, Adelaide, lent by Trevor Kennedy, gold and malachite brooch. This brooch is stamped JMW and is recorded as being a gift, a birthday present by Balmano to his dearly beloved wife, Elizabeth Green, also a token of love and affection in appreciation of his success in life during 12 years, and to thank her for this. Bought in Adelaide, Australia, March 24, 1872.
2: The thing about Australiana is that it's seen as quite kitsch, isn't mm. it? Except in its expression here, it's it's really quite fine and beautiful. But it, it, Australiana is part of a tradition of you know that takes you from the two dollar tourist shop to a collection yeah. like this.
0: I, I mean, I I I disagree with you fundamentally. Okay. Um, a, a lot of the early materials of whatever they were, whether it was carved frames for photographs whether it was trophies for horse races or whether it was there was nothing kitsch about it. I mean once again when we talk about Australiana I like to think of it as everything that is got an Australian motif or association.
2: So you don't see Australiana as kitsch in any way. Why?
0: Well I don't see why I should. Why should I?
2: Good question. Good comeback.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One person's kitsch is another person's thing of great beauty in many respects.
7: Even at the center of the fire there is
2: The best place to find the enthusiastic owners of some of this jewellery was opening night at the Bling exhibition in Ballarat, and earshot producer Lynn Gallagher popped up from Melbourne to catch collectors and owners excitedly hovering around the displays. Like so many in the business, they preferred to remain anonymous.
9: That is a photograph of a great, great great-grandmother on my side of the family. And uh, she was the lady that was stitching the flag on the uh, Eureka Fields. And where did the jewellery come from? Oh, I searched for something I wanted to remember her by, to put her photo in, and I was lucky enough to find it. <laughs> so is it genuine goldfields yes, bling? it is, yes. With a genuine... photograph of someone who stitched the Eureka flag. Yes. Well that is remarkable. And then I really then later on, uh, I'm the one who's restored it the first time, the flag. Restoring her work. And are you from Ballarat? Yes. Four generations.
7: And does it feel like the
9: city's proud? I think so. I think we're a lovely city, very much multicultural because on the gold fields, people were coming from all over the world So, of course, we started off with all these different countries digging for gold side by side.
2: Until the gold rush, the only gold in the colony was the small amount new settlers had brought with them. Being a jeweller in Australia was far more mundane than it might have been back home.
7: Date? Uncertain. Maker Charles Jones, Australian colonial gentleman's dress ring. Jewellery was not on the list of requirements for survival in a new nation until Jacob Josephson opened Australia's first jewellery business in Sydney in 1818. He and other jewellers, mainly of convict origin, used their skills to repair spectacles, watches, clocks, and jewellery brought to the colonies. This ring bears the marks for Charles Jones, CJ in an impressed rectangular cartouche, a convict silversmith who arrived in Tasmania in 1833. It could be Australia's earliest surviving piece of jewellery crafted from native gold.
6: The early Australian designers all came from Europe pretty soon after the discovery of gold. So they're usually German or Danish or French or English, and and they they usually set up businesses in the major cities. The difficulty is that they're not hallmarked the way English jewellery is hallmarked. So it's very hard, very often, to determine who did make it. So it's great if you actually find a piece that is marked Steiner, (laughs) because Henry Steiner was a fantastic jeweller who made lots and lots of beautiful silver as well. And he's from Geelong.
1: If you look at the jewellers of the time in London, you had Carlo Giuliano, who was probably the most fashionable jeweller in in London. He went back to the Greek um, history, whereas in Australia they looked at what was around them and no other country had the exciting, unique flora and fauna as we have it.
2: So they just weren't interested in looking back? I find that fascinating that they turned their backs on that classical history and said, look what we've got here.
1: This is what I keep saying. The discovery of gold was the most important social, economic and political event in our history. And cultural and aesthetic. Yes, and arts. And people look at the the Heidelberg School and say, isn't this wonderful? They have captured the Australian nation. But this jewellery caught it 50 years beforehand.
2: Tell me what Robert Hughes wrote about Australian art during the early 1800s and and why that's significant.
1: Essentially, Robert Hughes is saying we didn't see that uniqueness in Australian art certainly before the Heidelberg School. But what I'm saying is that Australian colonial jewellery captured that unique feeling well before the Heidelberg School.
2: And how did it do that?
1: If you were to pick up a piece of Goldfield's jewellery, You could almost smell that hot, dry air of the Ballarat Goldfield. And in the pieces, they displayed Australian flora and fauna. And it was done in Australia. And it was never done to that degree on canvas or paper before that time. The celebration of Australian flora and fauna in this colonial jewellery was unique to Australia.
8: brooch with kangaroo and ferns. Date circa 1855. Attributed to maker William Patterson, Geelong, Victoria. Private collection. Patterson advertised making jewelry to order from Ballarat gold. Ferns were a popular motif in the Victorian era, and curiosity about this type of exotic flora spawned pterodomania, meaning fern madness. Or fern craze.
1: It was exciting to send these pieces home to the UK or the US. For them to have a piece of jewellery with a kangaroo on it was absolutely amazing. To have a piece of jewellery that was probably 20 carats as opposed to faux gold or lesser grade minor pieces of jewellery of Europe, it was so exciting at the time.
2: Having lived in Australia and worked with the highly desirable Australian gold, the jewellers then made a splash in the other direction, taking their work back across the seas to the trade fairs in Europe and America.
4: The Australian jewellers turned up at at these shows and see they'd have to obviously pay their own way, there was no Department of Foreign Affairs and Trading then to, to help them out. So they would actually invest a hell of a lot in wanting to have an international reputation. And so they would take over the very best of what they could make, so they were competing on an international level as well as with each other. So we've got these incredible pieces of jewellery, as well as ink stands and, and things of that nature and presentation pieces. But the Victorians actually also managed to present a thirteen and a half metre high facsimile of a it was a gold pyramid. And on the sides of the pyramid, there were lots and lots of little nuggets with the names and the places of people who had found them. Now, this was actually just showing how much gold had been pulled out of Victoria in one year alone, and it was huge. And this kind of expression wasn't done in Europe, it wasn't wasn't the kind of thing that was normally done at these exhibitions. And so they really knew how to make an impact.
5: The other thing about this jewellery was it was the beginning of an Australian identity. And, you know, we were all British colonies, but suddenly these jewellers are capturing things that are uniquely Australian. And you can imagine, you know, walking down the streets of Ballarat or Melbourne and these nouveau riche working around with all these symbols of their newfound wealth that would have upset the order of things. You know, the people who were here from Britain would have probably found that a bit confronting.
1: I guess there would be many who would see a man who walked to the goldfields in rags, pushing a wheelbarrow with his pick and shovel, and coming back via Myers in Bendigo with a magnificent suit of the style of London at the time. And his suit was adorned with this magnificent jewellery. Well, I guess if they weren't part of the, the luck of finding gold, their nose would be out of joint somewhat. So that's, as I said, part of the social change that occurred in Australia at the time. But nothing has changed. I'm from Perth, and I guess for many of the miners today, the way of showing their wealth, instead of wearing gold cufflinks and gold fob chains, might be driving a Ferrari or some fast car.
2: The West Australian brooches were an entirely different style. Gold was discovered much later, in 1895 in Boulder City, now Kalgoorlie, and by then the fashions had changed. The style there was to make simple mementos, often just a narrow gold bar or two, and over that in an arch shape, the name of the town where the gold was from.
4: It was the mine owners or the mine bosses that would have had these made, not the diggers, not the people that have gone and found this gold on the surface necessarily, and those pieces, because you remember it's still late Victorian era, are presented to people. They're like souvenirs, aren't they? They, you know, are, they, are, they are souvenirs. Are
6: souvenirs. A souvenir jewellery.
4: That's what, exactly
6: what it is. And
4: you've got to remember too that towards the end of the 19th century you're reaching the aesthetic period and so the aesthetic period is is hallmarked by having a much finer and more refined kind of jewellery. It's not the big ostentatious thing but also when you think about the kind of clothing that you would have worn in Western Australia in the goldfields you're going to be wearing light cotton. You can't actually support a massive brooch on light cotton. You can only support these lovely little things. I think it's just a celebration of of our icons. And uh, I think that there's a a shameless kind of almost bling factor with all of these things, in that they really are quite exuberant expressions of of our landscape, both social and physical.
2: The pick-and-shovel motif travelled with those miners who followed the gold overseas. And there are some very similar brooches around which come from America or South Africa. But it's worth checking in with your family. You never know what you might have tucked away, tarnished and unloved.
1: I have to say it concerns me greatly when people have pieces like this unaware of what they are and they go to gold buyers who might give them a pittance for the value of the gold and they're broken up or melted and there goes our nation's heritage.
2: So you would say to people if you've got a a gold piece Have a close look at it.
1: Have a close look at it. I have to say, this could be your antiques roadshow opportunity in life. Goodness knows what's around. And this colonial jewellery, if we don't get it together now, in 50 years' time or 100 years' time, it will not exist.